Buddy Bear. Buddy Bear. That's the name of, I don't know if you're familiar with him, the television chef Jamie Oliver. He's married to a model named Juliet Brood. And they go by Jamie and Jules. But anyway, that's the name they gave to their child. Legal name, Buddy Bear. And probably really isn't that unusual because there are other he joined siblings who are named Poppy Honey, Daisy Boo Pamela, Petal Blossom Rainbow, and River Rocket Blue Dallas. I guess it's not as bad as the family down in western Illinois that I knew of who named their boy Peter. That wouldn't be such a bad name if their last name, family name, wasn't Rabbit. (laughs) Peter Rabbit. Or how about Shanda? Shanda, that's not a bad name. It's actually a traditional and hugely common girl's name. But probably not the best name for the... Uh, founder of the Learjet company known as uh, Learjet, whose last name was Lear, and so she was Chandelier. <laughs> names. Unusual names. Now listen to me. One of the major channels that the Lord called the prophets to was that of symbolic actions. And in doing so, God gave them no easy task. Imagine how the Word came to life in these families. Like Isaiah. Isaiah, the birth and naming of children, became an act of preaching. And he named his children. One son he named, a remnant shall return. Chapter 7, verse 3. Isaiah chapter 8, verse 3, the other child was speedy as the spoil, quick the plunder. Now, these strange names made people think as they watched the prophet walk down the street carrying his children. Was remnant a sign of disaster in war or a hope for new growth in the future? Did return refer to the aftermath of battle or to the spiritual return and repentance? Who was fast to spoil and plunder when? You see, God's people had to listen to the prophet preach to determine the meaning. But the children's names made them curious enough to listen. And I'm sure I have no doubt that Jerusalem citizens knew the prophet was doing more than acting crazy when he wandered the streets of Jerusalem minus his clothing for three years pointing to God's actions against Israel's enemies to the south. Read Isaiah chapter 20. Symbolic action. And you know, Hosea had an even more difficult task. He not only had these names, but he had to endure a broken heart and a broken marriage along with public indignity and disgrace. 
And that is what chapters 1 to 3 of Hosea was all about. Hosea's experiences. God called him to marry a prostitute and then name her children Jezreel, the sign of a battle, not pitied or without a mother's love, indicating the withdrawal of God's love and forgiveness from Israel, and not my people or illegitimate indicating Israel no longer had a guarantee of God's election and protection. And later, God would use those names to indicate His renewed covenant with His people. But Israel had to pay attention to Hosea, if only to hear the latest gossip about his family. And as they listened, they learned the nature of God's deep Undying love for His people. A love going beyond all human love. And that's what the rest of Hosea chapters 4 to 14 is going to be about. It's going to bring us Hosea's messages. One author that I read said that in the first three chapters of Hosea we have what could be referred to as the volume of Gomer and her children. And as you'll recall, Gomer represents us, our rebelliousness. And in these chapters, Gomer and her her children served as a type, T-Y-P-E, a type, an image, a model for the relationship between God and His people. But now... In chapter 4, verse 1 and following, the book of Hosea is going to give its arguments against Israel. And the tone is that of a prosecutor or maybe an adversary, accuser, as in the book of Job. And that person's going to lay out his charges against the accused. I think it's interesting that throughout this material, There are promises of redemption that keep coming in. Appearing just as suddenly and as unexpectedly as did the reversals of judgment that we saw in the three children's names. You see, this isn't simply a book of accusation. But it's also a book of redemption. Our text for today is going to be Isaiah chapter 4 verse 1 all the way through the second verse of chapter 7. And my title for my message today is Hope and Repentance. But I want to use as our red text only the first three verses of chapter 6. I hope you'll go back and read chapters 4 and 5 and and the rest of chapter 6 in the first couple verses of chapter 7. Because we will be referring to them today. Hosea chapter 6, verses 1 to 3. Come, let us return to the Lord. For He has torn us that He may heal us. He has struck us down and He will bind us up. After two days He'll revive us. On the third day He will raise us up that we may live before Him. Let us know Let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn. He'll come to us as the showers, as the spring rains. 
that water the earth. May God add His blessing to our reading of His Word. Now, before I get into my message, if you go back to chapter 4, verse 1, our text for today begins with all of the indications that chapter 4, verse 1, is a major division in the book. That first verse, Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. You see, what we have there is we have the call. Here, listen up. And we have the authority. Listen up to the word of the Lord. Who? We're given the audience. Oh, children of Israel. And we're also given the reason. For the Lord has a complaint. Things aren't right. And you know what? I would be very tempted if I was asked to give a speech to a public audience in our world today, I would be very tempted to say, hey, listen up all you people. There are some things that we need to understand that aren't right. And he goes on to say what it is. No faithfulness, no steadfast love, no knowledge of God in the land. What Hosea is doing is he's summarizing the charges that we're going to see repeated through the rest of the book. No faithfulness, no love, no acknowledgement of God. Those are, those are three ways of saying no integrity, no compassion. And since those things don't exist, it's only natural that there's no knowledge of God. And this is a deliberate rhetorical device, strategy that Hosea uses that is still modeled on the three children and their names. And so, I want us to begin, first of all, by realizing that chapter 4, after this introduction in verses 1 to 3, chapter 4 through chapter 5, verse 14, basically is bringing us the accusation. And basically the accusation is, is that the covenant that had been established between the people and God, the covenant's been shattered. They're living a lie. There's no integrity. This last week, maybe the week before, we did some business. I don't even remember what it was. There's been so much going on. But I do remember this. I remember the guy looking up and asking me, do you need a receipt? And I said, no. If I didn't trust you, I wouldn't be here. And uh, so if I need to come back, I'll know where to come. And he reached up his hand and I shook his hand and he said, it's been a long time since a handshake was all that was needed between me and a customer. Integrity. No love or no compassion. It's the Hebrew word hesed. It's a word that's used for mercy. It's a word that's relational to the core. In other words, what he's saying is, you people are going through the motions. You don't really care about each other. And no knowledge of God. And he's not just talking about knowing 
objectively that there is a God. Oh yeah, God's name. They call Him Yahweh. Some people call Him Jehovah. Uh, it's the Trinity, God, Father, Son. Now, what he's using here is a word that says there's no personal, no subjective knowledge of God. And then he goes on quickly right there in that chapter 4 to give us five words. Bang, 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 bang. Five words that he says, here's part of the problem. They're swearing, lying, murder, stealing, committing adultery. You know what he's just done? He says, hey, surely you remember the Ten Commandments. How about Commandment 3, Commandment 9, Commandment 6, Commandment 8, Commandment 7? Five of the Ten Commandments that are obviously being just neglected. And one result of that sinfulness, and I believe one result of our sinfulness, is what Hosea says in verse 3. Therefore, therefore, the land mourns. I know that there's been a lot of stuff that has been pushed out of proportion. But I also realize that we have not been good stewards of this world that the Lord gave us. And I think some of it is coming back on us. And the land is mourning. There's also something else going on in this first section in terms of accusation. Three times Hosea alludes to the name of his child, Loami, by speaking of Ami, my people. Verse 6, verse 8, and verse 12. And what he's doing is in verses 4 to 10, he's focusing on the failure of the religious leaders, the priests, and the people. And there is a pattern that's developing there in which he, he gives a, a something that they should feel guilty over and then what the punishment is. For instance, verse 4. Don't contend. Don't make it... You know, let none accuse the punishment. You're going to stumble. My people are destroyed because you have rejected knowledge. The next part of the verse, I reject you, the punishment. Verse 7, the more they increase, the more they sinned against me, the punishment, I'll change their name from glory into shame. And another punishment, they feed on, on the sin of my people and my people like priests. But then the last one, the last one. They have forsaken the Lord to cherish whoredom, wine, new wine, which take away understanding. And then, down in verse 14, the third part of that verse, and a people without understanding shall come to ruin. Verse 11 
see there the first part, second part, which take away understanding and a people without understanding shall come to ruin. That's a proverb. And what he does is he separates the two lines of that proverb to help us understand the accusation. And the accusation is here. My people, one of the ways that you have taken away understanding is you inquire of a piece of wood and a walking staff to get answers. In other words, you're going to your idols instead of to God. They sacrifice on the tops of the mountains. Burn offerings on the hills. That's not where God had said to offer you their sacrifices. And a people without understanding shall come to ruin. I think the accusation is pretty clear. And I don't think we are innocent. I believe that when we base our hope and trust on the military machinery of the world, when we base our hope and trust on political leaders and political parties and ideology, when we place our trust on what we might happen to have in the banks on reserve, those are all forms of idolatry. And we'll be judged by them. Remember the parable Jesus told about the man who had a really good year, a really good harvest. What did the man say? Man, I've done good this year. I'm going to build bigger barns. And how does the parable go? You fool. You fool. Tonight, your life is going to be required of you. Taken. Verse 17 says, Ephraim is joined to idols. And when their drink is gone, they give themselves to, to whoring, drunkenness, idolatry, licentious living. Verse chapter 5, the first 14 verses. Basically, what he's saying is, Israel, your condition is incurable. And the religious and the civil leadership are under judgment. Now, I'm not going to give you an answer. I'm not going to tell you how you should think. I just want you to ask the question. Is it possible that we as a nation are under judgment because of the way we've allowed some things to go in our nation? So, the accusation is made. And in chapter 5, verses 8 and 9, he says, And the punishment is imminent. Blow the horn in Gibeah, the trumpet in Ramah, sound the alarm in Beth Haven. Ephraim shall become a desolation in the day of punishment. Among the tribes of Israel, I make known what is sure. You see, here's the problem. In verses 5 to 7 of chapter 5, it says to us they were proud of their waywardness. Autumn and I were just talking about this last night. Talking about how you'll see some people at a party and 
they'll take a drink of something and they'll get the nastiest looking face. And then they'll say, oh, that was great. And then they'll drink way too much and get drunk and then you'll talk to them the next day. Went to a great party. Oh, yeah? Who was there? Well, tell you the truth, I don't remember much about it. Got sick on the way home. Oh, yeah, that's a great party. Now, here's the problem. They were proud of their waywardness. And in verse 5, basically what Hosea says is what we've heard in other words. Pride goes before the fall. The pride of Israel testifies to his face. Israel and Ephraim shall stumble in their guilt. And in verse 6, he says your sacrifice, your worship, isn't even going to help you. With their flocks and herds, they'll go and seek the Lord. But they're not going to find Him. Why? Because they're not going for the right reason. I said to somebody not too long ago, you know what? If you're not going to come to church for the right reason... I would rather you not come at all and bring judgment upon yourself. Why are we here? Because we think it's the thing to do? We want our neighbors seeing us going to church? Or we're here, are we here to legitimately worship? After the accusation, though, comes a ray of hope. Starting in chapter 5, verse 15, down to verse 3 of chapter 6, there is this ray of, ray of hope that comes to us. I'll return again to my place, God says, until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face and in their distress earnestly seek me. And then chapter 6, the words we read, Come, let us return to the Lord. For He has torn us that He may heal us. He struck us down and He'll bind us up. And after two days He'll revive us. And on the third day He'll raise us up. I want to go to the New Testament. Not a bad place to go sometimes. And I want to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It's that great passage where Paul talks about what he was preaching. And listen to what he says. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with Scripture, and He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with Scriptures. And He he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at the same time, most of whom are still alive though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, He appeared also to me. Paul says there in that passage that He was raised on the third day in accordance to Scriptures. Go search it, I did. The only place that is found is right here in Hosea in this message of hope. 
that when God does return after two days and revives, on the third day He'll raise us up. Paul is interpreting that as the ultimate indication that His representative of Israel, Jesus Christ, is going to in fact be raised up and there is hope there in the future. And in verse 3 of chapter 6, I read it. Let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. That's personally. Not knowing about God, but experiencing God. And so, from chapter 6 verse 4 down to the second verse of chapter 7. He tells us basically there is a need for true repentance. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? The question is raised. He says, your love's like a morning cloud. What are the morning clouds like? How many times have you gotten up in the morning, looked out, and it's kind of overcast, kind of gray, even more so with the fog? And after a little bit, what's it do? A lot of times it disappears, dissipates. He says that's how your love is. Your love's like the morning cloud. Now, you need to truly repent. And in verse 6, for I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. Knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. What's the Word of God to you and I? God is far more concerned with relationship and with our love than He is with us doing whatever we're doing just for the sake of doing it. Going through the motions. Those are a lot more important than going down to the temple with your sacrifice and then on the way home treating somebody like garbage. And this passage, remember what I told you as we were beginning the study of of Hosea? One of Hosea's students, understudies, though separated by over a hundred years, was Jeremiah. Jeremiah carried on the mission of Hosea. And in Jeremiah chapter chapter 9, verses 23 and 24, Jeremiah says, hey, if you're going to boast... Don't boast in a lot of that other stuff. Boast in this, that you understand and know God. And that's been a theme already so far in Hosea as we've been looking at it. Chapter 2, verse 20. Chapter 4, verses 1 and 6. Chapter 5, verse 4 here. Chapter 6, verse 3. And it's going to come up again in chapter 8, verse 2. God desires for us to know Him. To spend time with Him. Now, I don't want you to raise your hands because I don't want you to disappoint yourself. Maybe disappoint me. But how many of you have taken time and paused every day this past week to read a portion of God's Word and to pray? 
I have never felt as blessed in our marriage as I have this year. Because even for the last two years, I've been reading through the Bible each of those years. This past year, we slowed the pace down. The first two years that I was here, I read the Old Testament twice and the New Testament four times. This last year, we slowed it down and we're reading through the Old Testament once and the New Testament twice, but Jesse and I are doing it together. Each morning, as husband and wife, joining together to read God's Word. Because God wants us to know Him. And I don't know of any way that I can really know God intimately without it starting right here. Oh yeah, I know. I can look out at creation and see that there was a Creator and it had to be an awesome being. But I can't know God personally doing that. It begins right here. The story of salvation. The story of His love. And so I want to close basically with this. What happened? What happened in terms of their restoration? Because they they were in exile. Judah got taken into exile just like Israel had. The, The words of Hosea didn't go heeded. And He tells us. He tells us right there in chapter 7, verse 2. But they... Do not consider that I remember all their evil. Now their deeds surround them, and they're before my face. And by their evil they make the king glad, and the princes by their treachery. What's he saying? He's saying basically that their restoration was prevented by their character. They really didn't repent. Now, I've had this discussion often, and I firmly believe that baptism is essential in terms of the process of our salvation. Every single account of a conversion in the book of Acts, every single one, they got baptized right away, even late at night. But I'm going to tell you this, there's nothing magical about that water When I was in Illinois, I got a call from a man saying, hey, I wonder if you'd be interested in baptizing my daughters. And I said to him, I'll be glad to talk to them. He said, talk to them? I said, yeah. I said, I need to talk to them about why they want to be baptized. Because baptism, for the wrong reason, is just a matter of getting wet and then getting dry again. And they never came to talk. They wanted to be baptized to perform some kind of a a magical act that would somehow secure them of eternity in heaven. Baptism is not fire insurance. You can go down into the baptistry a dry sinner and come out of the baptistry a wet sinner. Baptistry involves submitting our lives and dying and being buried. And if you're not willing to die, you can hold your breath underwater and come back up a live sinner. 
We've got to bury that old self. And their, their restoration was prevented by their character. And so here's my closing question. How would you define your relationship? Your knowledge, your personal knowledge of God. Where are you at? Are you truly repentant of things that you've done? Are you truly willing to submit your life to the King of the Kingdom, Jesus Christ? We're finding out more and more these days that there are a lot of people who are citizens of the United States of America who have no allegiance and no loyalty to this country at all. We have a lot of people who say and claim they're Christians, but they really have no loyalty and no allegiance to Jesus Christ, the King at all. Let's pray. <coughs>